Hello, you're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast by teachers and organisers aiming to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective, what's going well and what really requires improvement. Today your host is Tom and I'm joined by co-hosts Nick. Hello. And Lee. Hello there. And we're also very, very privileged to welcome our guest for today, Joe Glenton. Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello everyone, Lo- lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm, um, I'm a journalist nowadays. I've just written my second book um, about the military and, that, and I suppose that's my other many years ago, the different guys, I was a soldier for, um, for about five and a half years, served in Afghanistan um, and a couple of, you know, went to Kenya, spent a lot of time in the UK as well, obviously. Um, but yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. And shall I say thank you for your service as well? Um, <laughs> I thought I'd get that in early. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So, um, yeah, I've I've read the book uh, Veteranhood. It's a fantastic read, really entertaining, really insightful. So, I definitely recommend um, everyone to get it. But I suppose you're here today to talk um, more specifically about kind of militarization, the militarization rather of of UK education and of schools. And I think uh, the three of us sat here, we can all kind of give stories about. Um, about we've seen the kind of creeping militarization i think year on year we're ratcheting up throughout our careers um so yeah i mean would anyone like to start there talking about um that kind of recent experiences of a uh, of poppiness in school i don't have anything bad i wasn't actually in on the, the thursday when it happened but i know they they get this kid to play the uh on the bugle the re- reveille is it i don't know how to pronounce it and um the last the last post and he Trump, and he records it, and then all the teachers are supposed to play it at, at eleven o'clock, um, which just seems a bit strange to me. But um, luckily, I wasn't there because I'd already decided I wasn't going to do it. Did you have to do anything strange? Uh, I also was not at work on that Thursday oh. because I was working for the union. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is a topic that is directly addressed by Joe in his book. So why don't we let him uh, say some words on that issue? It's, it's funny, guys. My um, a good friend of mine, he's a really left-wing journalist. The other day, his kid, who must be, I think he's quite young, might be in preschool or whatever, it's like four, came back with a paper plate with a poppy painted on it, and that was the day's, that was the day's entertainment. And I think that kid's lucky, because that kid is not obviously not going to become like a rabid imperialist, because his dad's a really, he's quite a prominent left-wing journalist, uh, and he's written a couple of books about anti-imperialism and stuff. I mean, Hillary Ben though is the. I mean, most of the big left wing people have terrible right wing kids. Right? Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm terrified yeah. about. That's what I'm terrified about. Yeah, we did joke about it. his kid might end up like being a proper Tory like, as, a, as a reaction to his dad's really left wing politics. But um, yeah, I suppose a lot, a lot of kids don't have that advantage. Um, and you see, I mean, I, 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 one of my jobs, I work for Forces Watch, obviously, and the militarisation of education is a big big concern for us we've done a couple of projects on it but yeah as you say it's like crept in military militarism has crept in in all aspects of life i think in recent years i think particularly it's particularly problem with um history syllabuses um particularly over the period of the centenary there was michael gove and that pushing from a kind of cultural perspective militarized um uh, history syllabuses. And in fact, only today I, I was looking at doing some archival stuff with some friends of mine who, a veteran actually, who was part of the Troops Out movement in Northern Ireland. There was a plan came from a Tory, I forget the name of the MP today, to, to reframe, rebrand and, and revise um, the history of the conflict in Northern Ireland, particularly the history of the British Armed Forces in Northern Ireland. So it seems to me these things are happening all the time they've intensified and it seems to be happening at many different levels from tertiary education down to down to my mate's kid who comes home with a paper plate with a poppy painted on it because that's what they've been doing with the whole class so, so there's a lot of stuff going on there i think i guess uh also like a couple of questions sort of we were throwing around one was um us as kind of lefties or people who are kind of concerned about militarization of society and things like that what is there anything we can do if a kid tells us they want to join the army? I mean, it's not really our job to be kind of, you know, dictating what they do or don't do with, with their lives, really. But um, it's, it's something that's come up. It's like, you know, if, if you are going to try and, you know, it, it, 
is it is it sort of morally upon us in any way to try and kind of resist that or is it not really our place or um are they you know you've got to accept that they might be doing things for good reasons i don't know what your thoughts are on that yeah i mean i don't because I, I think about it in terms of when i was a kid and when, when i talked to my other mates who ended up in the military when they were kids i mean is it because militarism is kind of present in our lives all the time we're a some people call it a post-imperial country, obviously it's arguable that it's still an imperial country. It's kind of in the DNA, it's in the culture that the army does particular things. It's good, it's a force for good, it has this kind of moral, this kind of moral um, aspect to it. And so it's difficult to argue against that. If I'm honest, when I was a young kid, I wouldn't have listened, to be honest. And even when I was in my teens and started thinking about it, if people had told me not to join, it probably would have made me want to join more. So it's like, I think it's a systemic problem, really. I mean, and it's the way we think about the military. And it's it's, an, it's also an aspect of recruiting that we'll, we'll go into, I imagine. About um, five years ago, there was um, the head of recruiting, one of the heads of army recruiting, um, a colonel um, was quoted, and he was saying that recruiting is about a drip, drip, to gradual drip, drip throughout your whole life. And it's not just about recruiting kids, like literally recruiting people to go into the military. It's about recruiting the whole of society. The army wants to recruit the whole of society to thinking about the military in a particular way, thinking about foreign policy in a particular way and Britain's role in the world and its past adventures in a particular way. So it's a, it's a society-wide process. It's, recruiting is a part of it, and that, that's connected with education. It starts in school in the sense of literal recruiting, but it's also they're trying to recruit your mum, your dad, your nan, your dog, your fucking cat, your hamster, everyone. Um, to a particular way of thinking. And the military is very good at this. The military has the largest PR department of any government department. It has over 500 people. That's like more than some battalions because they can't get the troops for some infantry battalions. They've got more PR people than they have infantry soldiers in some of the guards battalions. So they invest a lot of time and a lot of money. in it. That's one aspect of what they do, but they're very good at propaganda, for a better word, for... for um, grabbing hold of narratives and shaping them in particular ways. And that happens at all levels. Yeah, what do you think about, um, and uh, the three of us sat here, we might have some ideas about this. How do we see this kind of play out kind of in schools in the day-to-day? Uh, well, if we, uh, in schools that I have taught in, uh, if we put on a careers fair, uh, you will always have in-person attendance from the armed forces. And uh, it's also coincidence that in our... Um, area that we teach try not to be too specific um the ministry of defense and the aerospace industry are also the largest employers um so there's this whole ecosystem of uh well careers that are being offered uh very uncritically to the students a lot of the students have family members who basically you know uh, without wishing to put too harsh a phrase on it they they profit from war and their incomes that depend on it whether they do any direct fighting or not it's quite deeply embedded in 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 the local area so so you've really got to tread carefully if, as a teacher, you're trying to get the kids to think critically. Um, I mean, that's another thing I really enjoyed about Joe's uh, book, because um, he's he's positing a critical veteranhood, you know, and... Um, I think there's, you know, linking back to what we were saying about the nature of the curriculum over the last 10 years, it's very uncritical in how it presents, uh, you know, mainstream narratives and the role of the military. Um, so, yeah, there, 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 there is a lot of militarism, but it's it's almost... Um, it's 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 an atmosphere. It's almost invisible. Like, you, you've, you've kind of got to be... Um, a little bit far down the rabbit hole to even be aware that it's there. Um, so you can feel like um, your colleagues and, you know, your, some of your older students, it's like you're talking a different language if you bring this stuff up. Uh, that, that's that's how I feel about it. Um, but linking back to what Joe was saying about the budgets, you know, we do get tangible help from institutions like the Ministry of Defence. They are very generous with their career support, with their work experience, with their mentoring. And for schools are in a tough situation where it's hard to turn down that help in a situation where there's not much else there for them, especially in terms of funding. Yeah, and I think similar to that, like I was looking just um, just yesterday actually about taking my little little son to um, the Aerospace Museum because he likes planes. And I had a quick look on their website, a cursory look, see how much it would cost to enter. And I think half the fucking place, it's missiles, it's fighter jets, 
it's really insidious, it's really hideous. Like, check out the website, you can see a small little child staring up at this big, huge fighter jet. And it's like, makes me feel a bit queasy and a bit sick, but I imagine that's not the response a lot of people get if that's pride of place on their website. So, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the other thing that, that's that's pretty uh, common in the, the town where I teach is they have, uh, the, and it's not, link, it's not linked to schools, but they have kind of cadets and mm-hmm. uh, Navy and RAF cadets. Uh, I, I don't think they have army ones. But um, again, also that, that's, that's pretty common in private schools. British private schools often have, um, if not compulsory, like quite a lot of the kids end up doing some form of like, minor military service at school in some kind of way of um kind of a sort of like long-term work experience to kind of get them to make to sort of normalize the idea and it is fun like i've done that kind of stuff i've done the assault courses and i've shot the what's it called the lsw and done the other stuff like that um and yeah and it is appealing to kids but i think uh, the other thing i've been teaching like world war one history recently and it is interesting like you know, you do this lesson and it's like you've got all the propaganda posters of the kitchener stuff pointing at people and you're like, why did someone go to war? Oh, was it National Pride? It's like, no, nah. it's probably because where they lived was really shit and they had no options and they wanted the girls in the town to fancy them so they would wear a nice uniform. You know, yes, obviously there's some kind of ideology in there, but the material conditions are a really important thing. And again, it's similar to why people join the army today. It's like you've got this huge employer and it's like the closest thing to like an actually functioning welfare state that these people are ever going to be able to access. Like... Um, yeah, career opportunities like counselling services, health, dentist paid for, like subsidised transport, housing, like all this other kind of stuff. Um, and I guess you can't really begrudge people for, for wanting access to that at all. Uh, I guess the question to Joe is like, is there any way that we could kind of, sorry, at we, by we I mean the left, is like, are there any opportunities in there? You know, the, the army, you know, as you said, is, is a very, the British army especially is a very right-wing institution. Um, are there any opportunities in there to to possibly talk about what a welfare state would be or, or to, to engage people politically in, in any way. Within the military, men. Yeah, or, or veterans, or maybe you think veterans is... No, that's a work in progress. There have obviously been times, and I'm trying to speak to the history of, of military veterans and armed forces personnel in this country, there have been times, particularly during times of conscription, but also at other times when the military population, if you like, has swung to the left. And there's a long history of that, a particular moments veterans one of the key differences conscription versus a professional army i think in a professional army the, the army of a capitalist bourgeois state um you, you're not encouraged to develop politics because the wars you are fighting are not for your benefit they're for the benefit of someone else I mean, that's the key division in, a, in an army like um the army of world war ii it had to accommodate all kinds of people at a moment at a time when there was much more working class solidarity that people would, would Working class troops coming in would have been much more likely to be involved in trade unions. Uh, and the same after World War II, when they all came out and formed veterans' unions. Those traditions of solidarity and stuff existed. The professional army of today is very different. You know, it's very different. I, I think that there's a sense of the states are scared of conscription. I think the lesson of Vietnam was that you could, if you conscript, then the army might mutiny, which exactly is precisely what happened in Vietnam. That war ground to a halt for many reasons, but one of them was that the soldiers started shooting their own officers. And going striking and going mutinying and, uh, and, and and causing all kinds of trouble. There was like open rebellion. Um, but a professional army, which is a, in our case and most Western professional armies, like small, backwards, very conservative, uh, very separatist. It's like it's like one of the veterans in my book describes it as like a dictatorship within a liberal democracy. And it's a very different thing to um, uh, there's more of a sense of it egalitarianism in a mass conscript army because the army has to accommodate whoever comes in because there's this mass of people coming in with all different kinds of ideas rather than picking and choosing like we do today so i mean we're like we try we try and we talk to veterans the thing is with organizing uh sorry serving armed forces personnel is they will look they will lock you up for it you'll go to jail for it there are no trade unions in the military um veterans are easier to organize in some ways if they're on the left uh, but obviously a lot of veterans come out and for various context reasons we can speak to, trauma, damage, um, the, the the kind of institutional experience end up being really right-wing um, and cranky and really hard to access. And they kind of love the fact they were veterans. But being a veteran is your personality for some people or a replacement for a personality. So, and that's that's a product of a professional army. 
um, which by their nature are much harder to organise it. Yeah, I just um, I I just got a flashback to one bit in your book, Joe, where um, you describe a certain archetype of of this veteran whose whose whole identity is veteranhood, and you describe them as blazers, and I, I thought that was quite an interesting uh, label. I mean, you do go into the book as to why you chose that. Um, we we frequently encounter a certain kind of teacher for whom teaching is the whole the whole business of their lives, and as it should be, you know, like in the sense that we want teachers that are dedicated and committed, but um, these are the people that basically read the Times educational supplement and think that Ofsted mean well. Uh, they're very, <laughs> they're very sort of uncritical in their in their view of the system writ large. They're not, they're not really systemic thinkers, and, and any attempt to make them so is uh, is 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 met with bitter hostility. Uh, but we 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 face similar challenges in organising, um, not in the way that it's easier for you to organise people who've left the army. Um, a lot of our parents are only invested in our sector for the seven or nine, you know, seven years that their children are at secondary school in sick form. So it's a tricky one. But I guess that's the thing, you know, we, you know, if we're trying to, on the left, you're trying to persuade people that you should have a more democratic workplace. Like effectively, like, that is kind of all you're saying. It's like, hey, imagine if, you know, you chose your boss or imagine if, you got to pick the things you did and didn't do. And sometimes people are like, oh, my God, yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? It's like, well, we could do that. If we do union organising, we could do that. And we, we struggle with that. But I guess in the arm, which is just so purely hierarchical, even, even yeah, the thought of seeing it in a different way is um, would be really hard. Yeah, I mean, the army is also riotous. Like, it's held in check by fierce discipline. It's also it's had this outward appearance of... Um, of discipline and organisation, and some of that's true to a degree, but it's also riotously chaotic um, inside. Like people are always kicking off and rebelling, but I think it's not in an organised way. That's the problem. People individually kick off. Um, I think I think that that's one of the problems they have. But like we have the exact same problem. I mean, there's a really good um, example the other day. There's a guy, former admiral, Lord Boyce, Tory peer, and someone had raised not for the first time in the armed forces bill. And there's loads of stuff going on about the military, about like recruit abuse, sexual violence. There's loads of stuff. And there's basically a load of military personnel who are like, I kind of just want to have dignity in my workplace and not be raped or murdered or beaten up. And the res- this guy's response is the response. It's like when, when the suggestion of an armed forces federation, it's like a union without the right to strike, came before the Lords, he started going on about Soviet commissars and fuck it, and all this all this stuff like that is his immediate he was a cold warrior he was injured in that period but it's like people are just asking not to be abused at work and you're like but that's communism chaps <laughs> that's literally the response of some of these people like, why would you want to it's like why would you on earth would you want to be in charge of your own life like when, when the machine breaks down we break down kind of shit but he was like absolutely frank about it though uh, and there are a lot like, there are lots of examples of that inside where even the idea of democracy, objectively a good thing. Even the idea of it is somehow offensive. But it's probably more pronounced in the military, as you say, because it's so hierarchical and weird. Um, but there are probably, I think in, in a lot of professions, maybe it's like a professional thing. I think institutional experience, whether it's the NHS, whether it's the cops, whether it's the army, maybe it's a teaching profession. There's probably a lot of that, I think. Well, I mean, schools as well. I mean, like, the, you know, most of the people out of school, their children, like, I'm not saying give kids, like complete control of everything uh but the kids don't really have that much say in what goes on in the school you know they're they're already in an institution which doesn't really there's sometimes like lip service paid to the idea of a student council and things like that but ultimately i don't know maybe maybe it's overregging it a bit but ultimately the kids are wearing uniforms like in some schools the the, you know the the turn towards having quite much more like sort of fascist type authoritarian discipline uh, procedures in schools is there like what they're told to do is quite boring they don't have any choices and even now like we've kind of retained a lot of this stuff uh from covid like at my school all the kids line up in rows in their tutor groups and they have their uniform and their equipment checked at the start of every day <laughs> sounds familiar <laughs> so yeah yeah you know, and you can say okay well it's just the easiest way of doing it and we can kind of go down the line and check these things and you know some teachers are kind of divided on that thing but a lot of teachers are control freaks and that that is that is a bit of a that is a bit of a problem um, perhaps we could talk more about um cuz uh, about the article that you shared with me early be- earlier because i hadn't e- it hadn't even occurred to me that um 
that Ofsted are responsible for regulating um, army education in in some way. Um, so I wonder what you what you, well, if you wanted to talk on that, or if you just wanted to talk generally about like what is what does education look like in in the military? Yeah, it's, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said. So one of my jobs is Forces Watch. It's Organisation Forces Watch, which monitors the military. It's kind of a military watchdog um, uh, monitor. And a lot of our stuff is about recruiting. It's very – we're one of the few countries who recruit as young as we do, like 16-year-olds, just coming up for 16. And Harrogate, which is where that what that article was referring to, is the kind of um, – I always call it the child soldier factory, but we have to distinguish – they're not like child soldiers in the Congo, but they are very young soldiers going through a process of military training. Um, and lots of allegations have come out there. I remember being at a court martial a couple of years ago, uh, sitting in the court. In fact, the court I was court-martialed in, but a number of years later, 16, 16 um, uh, training instructors, corporals and sergeants were up on on trial for a beating up recruits, making them, it was during bayonet training, which is a very aggressive process. They, they thrash them around and they've been accused of like punching people, kicking people, forcing them to eat cow shit, all kinds of stuff, which is pretty, if, you, if you've been in, I mean, that's not unusual fare in the military on bayonet training. I was going to say that's the, that's the character building kind of stuff you would expect. Yeah, they want to get, yeah that's really character building stuff, but that's, yeah. that's how they hire people up to stab and pretend how you feel dumb at it. Um, but that case actually collapsed, and it collapsed for interesting reasons. It was because the, the Royal Military Police, who kind of think of themselves as cops, but a kind of poundland cop for the army, um, didn't um, dot the I's and cross the T's, and the whole thing fell apart. And that's happened a lot, including not just with cases like that, but with case, cases of allegations of war crimes and stuff like that recently. Um, so that, and then there, but there have been more allegations since. And in fact, that article criticizing Harrogate. Um, Foundation College Harrogate um, uh, had more and he also last week a corporal got busted down to private and she was convicted of um, punching two recruits she was acquitted of six other charges um, and said, telling all kinds of she was a boxer and she was um, she, and, and naturally she put it down to banter it's character building it's banter I just give him a punch and stuff apparently she made one 16 year old cry uh, because she hit him that, those were them <laughs> we've all done that <laughs> Not a, without punching, without punching. Um, I do think, I do think it's worth pointing out that um, this same institution that has had um, many, many allegations of abuse coming out recently uh, was recently found outstanding by Ofsted. That's the sort of place they like to see. <laughs> so the, it's kind of mates' rates, I think, is a way to think about it. So Harrogate, as we came to understand it, is not rated on the quality of the education. Because the quality of the education, they do do some education, but it's not the same standard as kids who would have stayed in education, which I guess would be like GCSE level 15, 16, whatever. But it's rated on the facilities. So because it has a cool gym and a, 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 like a swimming pool, it's rated on that, but not rated on the education. Um, and and as, as we've pointed out many times, a lot of kids don't stay. So they often leave because they don't like it. They often get to the unit and leave very quickly because their age they can leave earlier and and then their education has been interrupted um so they, they're going back out into the world having missed a section of serious education um, but that because they, and they've been told the line they could kind of finish education uh, um, um harrogate so it's substandard but it gets mates rates from offset is my understanding of it and that stuff is on the forces watch website you can go and go and have a look um through our through our various reports and stuff we've written about this so it's all bad it's all bad and then i mean on top of that there are other issues like we, we've done a series of reports, um, the last ambush and the first ambush um, over the last six years or so. And on, basically on every metric, very young recruits and very young recruits, particularly working class recruits, who end up in the combat arms, the infantry, the killing bit of the military. On every metric, their lives seem to be worse. Drug addiction, domestic abuse, um, ending up in prison, ending up homeless, uh, all, all the various awful things that could happen to you in every way it's bad and it, it's not it has to be compounded by the fact that the military aggressively targets poor areas so the people they're getting are already damaged they're already they're, they're already at the sharp end of capitalism they're already in the class war though they may not theorize it in that sense uh, and then they're thrown into the military um for, for various reasons and um, so they're like they're it's almost like they're literally the worst kind of people you could drag into the grinding 
horrors of an, an extended military training because it's much longer for those young recruits because they can't deploy until they're 18. So everything is bad. Everything is bad. But the military clings to this. It clings to this. It loves the idea of of having these um, these uh, you know these young kids um, uh, and thinks it's a, it's um, they're the, the guys who will stay in long term. And some do. And some do. It's it's a like it's, it's amazing whenever whenever we put up a report about it, like the social media response is really really interesting. It's a guy who like who joined in as a boy soldier in the seventies, and in, and they always say the same thing. They're always like, if I hadn't done that, I would have been dead or in prison. And even that itself kind of tells you it wasn't. It doesn't sound like a really free choice to me. <laughs> it doesn't sound like. And then they're like, and it, it made a man out of me. And then you go on their Twitter feed, and they're always like, shoot the BLM protesters. <laughs> And they'll then literally the people who are like, I joined at 15 and I'm completely normal. And they'll have like a King Charles Spaniel with 20 poppies attached to it and a Lee Rigby and some Knights Templars kind of, you know, but they're like, no, I'm completely, completely unaffected by this experience, fellas. Um, so it's it's interesting. But I think, it, I mean, it's a, it's a long, hard thing. Uh, and Forces Watch and CRIN, the organisation who published that research, been fighting for a very long time to try and bring us in line, like, and the problem is there's an international perspective here because other countries who do this include like North Korea. And when the US or whoever at the UN says, North Korea, you must stop recruiting children, North Korea literally go, oh, but Britain, Britain, like, you can't tell us to do it. It has international impacts for children. It's having an international impact on, on, on children, not just here, but around the world. That We are an example who literally North Korea Literally, North Korea cite us as an excuse for what they do. So there's all kinds of all kinds of layers to this this debate. And it's very hard because the military is so deeply attached to this idea of recruiting. Can you think, I mean, apart from Britain being a completely kind of stupid place, can you think of any like historical reason why we've got uh, troops at 16 and other countries haven't? <laughs> I think it's almost like a cultural attachment. I mean, there are other people. We've done a lot of we've done a series of reports on this, and they would speak to them. Um, but I feel like having been in the military and having seen these kids, and they are kids turning up at units. So I joined when I was twenty-two. I was like the granddad. These kids turning mm. up at unit uh, mm. at seventeen. There's, yeah, there's this, there's this attachment to having them in there, and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense economically because um, obviously they suffer on every metric. They cost the state money down the line services and stuff like that they often don't stay in and their training is very expensive so the training is kind of wasted i really feel like it's a cultural it's some weird normal island shit it's like normal <laughs> island shit um, that they're desperately attached to having having kids in the military and it doesn't seem to benefit i'm sure i'm, I'm sure i'm quite even handled i'm sure some people do well out of it some people arrest for some people maybe the military is um, an engine of social mobility i'm willing to accept that but i think we also have to accept that on the whole the outcomes are very bad you know, I'll accept the exceptions if, if you accept the what is, you know the general outcomes, uh, which we see again and again and again. Yeah, I think that possibly they see it as like um, getting yeah violent thuggish types out of council estates and trying to it, yeah it's like a kind of extension of military service, isn't it? It's just trying to <laughs> like Glasgow or Manchester or, or you know uh, yeah. Northwest or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you think, Joe, if you could kind of make a prediction? Because I think it's in the last few weeks it kind of has cropped up a little bit, kind of the army, I suppose, more broadly in the culture war. Like I remember this a few kind of nascent discussions in the media about like things like sexism in the military or racism in the military. Uh, where do you think that's going to go? Is that going to go anywhere? Is there going to be some sort of reckoning about the culture in the military or is it more likely just going to feed into some culture war bullshit where like the abuse is the point this is what makes you tough this is what makes you hard uh, where do you think it's gonna go yeah they've been forced to couch their stupidity in quite liberal language and they they constantly claim that they've they're an organization who are kind of rushing to update and make things better for everyone and i do i do believe there are people in the military who do want to have a dignified workplace like who wouldn't there are people who go and do courses about um, lgbtq stuff about race about um you know, unconscious bias. Those people in the military do like lobby. I know of people who've lobbied to go on those courses, and then they've come back to the unit and been like, "When can I teach this?" And they're like, oh, "We haven't got time because the training schedule." I <laughs> know that's that's like on the back burner, whatever that is. But I do believe there are people who genuinely and understandably want to have live, work in a dignified working place and not be racially abused and 
and uh, you know and deal with all that stuff. Um, there's, the problem is that the, the kind of I think the old guard, um, the kind of the, the people who are in charge, the generals who've been in like 30, 40 years, whatever. We've just the head of the army's just left. Head of the military's just left. He had a forty-five year career, um, and so some of those people, um, you know, are not that bothered. They have different priorities. Uh, very often, they will. I think the same guy, Nick Carter, who's just retired, was going on about. Um, we kind of need laddish behaviour. Previously, he, in the same language, he's been like, "Oh, it's, laddish behaviour is bad. We need to stop this." And then the other day, he's like, "But we kind of need it." Um, um, it's, it's something about the kind of people in charge of the military. And also, that at the end of the day, let's be like systemic about it. It's an organisation that's about killing people and destroying things. It's, that's not my words. I've got a book up there by General Sir Rupert Smith, who was in charge of the, the first Gulf War. It's called The Utility of Force. And he's very frank. He's a very frank, honest, practical man. Militaries are about destroying things and killing people, tied to a political goal, ideally. And that is what that organisation is for. And with that, does not necessarily come... Um, things which uh, broader society, you know, even like liberal, liberal ideas, the idea of liberalising it, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that because that is its core aim and it jars with um, uh, kind of liberal ideas about how institutions should work in this country. Um, it's odds with that. My, I've always said, I mean, it was in the Corbyn Manifesto, it was in the, the, the 2019 Manifesto, and I'm not all, not all a kind of labourite, um, but, but it was in, there was some good stuff in the Manifesto about a federation. They promised to consult on a federation, a union without the right to strike. The union, other countries' militaries have unions. Um, and there's 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 a, a push, um, increasing push, to at least think, consider this idea rather than just having like an ombudsman, or rather than having what we've seen recently is like the, the race, the, you know, the race are in the military is a white dude, the um, the kind of uh, um, LGBTs are is a white straight dude. And so on. You can't, you can't reform that. You can't reform this. I'm sure the race guy's been to lots of other countries, though. That's probably his uh, qualification. Uh. We, saw it, we saw it. Some particular regiments are problematic. So we saw it with the parachute regiment has a weird fixation with the Fallschirmjäger, who this like Nazi era airborne unit, and there was a couple of black guys in the unit who um, left and brought a civil case because basically there's loads of black like, Fallschirmjäger, a ten point code of the Nazi airborne. And people are pinning it up in the accommodation and people have like tattoos of it and stuff like that. And the, even the CO was like referred to these young men as like, um, in court, he was like, ah, oh, the, the coloured boys. Now, that's literally the language he uses. <laughs> that's, that's how they speak, these um, these senior officers. That's the planet they live on. Um, and th- to him, that was completely acceptable. And so that's, that's what you're coming up against if you're like a person of colour or whatever in the military. That's what you're going to come up against, that kind of wall of just deep, profound, reactionary conservatism. I mean, I, 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 I'm in agreement, and I've kind of always thought that the military, without wanting to sound too pessimistic, I, I don't think the army is a reformable institution in the present. And that's, that pessimism is informed by, well, the last two wars that we've seen, uh, the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war. Uh, but I'm also, like, I was also aware from quite a young age about the, the deep cut murders. I don't know if you know much about that, Joe, or you got... Yeah, I was at deep cut about two years after that. So my phase two training was at deep cut and, and they were Art Royal Logistics Corps soldiers who died between 97 and I think 2002, there's four. There was actually a fifth case which only came out because it's very cloudy. There's a really good podcast about Deep Cut on, um, I think it's on Audible, uh, which I recommend people listen to because it, it really is a journal, an investigative journalist covered the, the inquest and it's really well, a good narrative podcast um, about all that. But yeah, that, I mean, those were, they were actually, they weren't, they weren't found to be murders in the end. There were very suspicious circumstances. There was a suggestion that the police messed things up, that they didn't tick the box, you know, tick the boxes probably. Uh, it's a very controversial case, and it's now over 20 years old. And 97 was the first death of, I believe, Cheryl James was a young 18-year-old private soldier who, um, who was found on guard. The pattern of it was that they, these kids were found on guard and they'd, they'd, they'd shot themselves in the head, one of them twice, with uh, with rifles. Because when I arrived, we were given... Um, <laughs> it's bizarre. I mean, it's, it's weirdly dark. We had, They'd taken the rifles off the recruits and given us pickaxe handles. And then I think towards the end of my time, they returned the rifles, but that was a couple of years later. It was a huge scandal. But I, I always say that's the scandal that's got out. Those are the scandals that get out. Mm. Um, 
and they don't all they don't all get out at least for many many years. And I deep cut it took nearly twenty years for the families to get inquests. And by the time of the fourth inquest, the family were just the, the last family. Were like I don't think we can. They didn't have the campaign for so many years, and I, I seem to recall they um they didn't want to proceed with it. And you can understand why. Like I, I have sympathy for that um, after so many years of pain and anguish for a, you know because they lost their kid. Not even in a war, but on a training base. Yeah, on a- and, and, and so that's the, the, why I bring that up is because I did just want to flag that I, I think this institution is capable of quite literally getting away with murder. And in fact, they have willing accomplices in the government who are pushing forward this armed forces bill that will give soldiers a uh, carte blanche to commit uh, war crimes in the future, but also, interestingly, prevent them from suing the government if they, they are treated with negligence. we <laughs> I'm sure that's another tangent we could go off, but the re- the reason I the reason I wanted to to just indulge that pessimism for a second is that there's another thread that shines out from your book that I actually think is very inspiring. I mean, two of us here are um, history teachers. Uh, Nick is an RE teacher, but. I think there is a wonderful, almost unknown history of radicalism within the British Armed Forces that does actually give me hope. Like, I almost feel more more inspired by the examples from the past where, um, I mean, even in your book, you describe yourself as a Rainsborough, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that at all. <laughs> my favourite bit. It could, I, I, I originally wanted to write a history book about the history of radicalism in the British military, but I think it's, it's probably relevant to all of your... History and RE, because I mean, the starting point of that is the Putney debates and the levellers and the new model army, the religious kind of. I mean, I don't think they're left in the sense of people are left wing today, but they were left wing radicals. Um, and you know, they spoke in religious terms about freedom and suffrage and democracy. And that's kind of the start of a, a really long tradition that runs all the way up to, to um, you remember that it was a young kid who, um, I think last year, yeah, during COVID, a young kid. A soldier in uniform came out, stood in Whitehall. He's an Anglo-Yemeni kid, Ahmed Al-Batati. Oh, uh, yeah. And he blew his whistle every every um, 10 minutes because that's, that's the, the reg, you know regularity of which a child dies in Yemen. And he probably didn't know that himself, but he's part of this long tradition from him last year all the way back to 1645 of like mutinies and outbreaks of radical democracy and trade union organisation in the military. Soldiers started electing other soldiers to represent them against their generals. Um, and put for, you know, in the, in the case of the New Model Army, put forward the, Dem- the, the Democratic Constitution, the UN Declaration and the American Constitution, that's where it comes from. That's where it's, you know, from, from the Putney debates, these documents and arguments which have been put in the Putney debates from the rank and file against the general saying no. Some bits really bread and butter shit that we would all re- recognise now, like they're talking about they don't want to get done for war crimes and they want widows for pensions. There's bread and butter stuff, but then there's big ideas about, they're talking about the commons. They're talking about monarchy and how it's unfair. They're talking about democracy. And that kind of in different ways expresses all the way through. So I use about four or five examples. Like I'll jump forward a couple of hundred years. You have Peterloo, where there's um, there's veterans in the crowd of Peterloo, the Peterloo riots. One dies of his wounds um, when the yeomanry charge in. They're, they're protesting against the court laws, mass demonstration there. And then the context of World War One and World War Two, and all the way up through... The kind of, I talk about the big explosions, which are events like that, when armies mutiny or rebel or organise in a particular way against monarchy or authoritarianism or their own generals. But then also the flashes, there's little flashes along the way as well, which is more individual resistance like myself, the guys in Veterans for Peace um, and Ahmed Al-Batati, the young man who was, who was discharged from the army after his protest in, uh, in Whitehall. But it's... And it's not to say it's the only current. It's not to say it's the dominant current. Military discipline generally compels people to do what they're told. But it is a current, and it's a current we should consider because it's a central part of our history and the history of democracy and struggle in these countries. And I say it in the book, as many a radical has learned how to organise and shoot straight in the ranks of the military and then come out and brought those things to bear for, um, for popular democratic causes and so on. So it's something, and it, it basically pisses me off because there's a conception. Um, it's kind of, a, they, they all do it, but I think the, the Blairites set are particularly bad at it. They're like, we have to play to this crowd who can only be small C Tories who we must win back to Labour. Or they're like Squadrismo-style fascists who love shagging statues. That's all you can be if you're a veteran. And it's just absolute, absolutely wrong. 
It's absolutely right. It's the very worst. It's the very worst of veterans history in this country. And there is a, an amazing, rich parallel history of kickoff merchants and barrack room lawyers and rebels and military trade unionists, which we should uh, acknowledge, acknowledge at least, uh, and talk about. So I try to do that. Yeah, I think with that, it kind of cuts both ways as well. Like you talk about Thomas Rainsborough and the, the army radicals and the agitators in the army. They were a kind of, they were a mass-based kind of majoritarian project. I, I suppose people look to that period of time and you can point to like the diggers, but in my kind of knowledge of that history, the diggers were probably a few dozen people, strange people who started digging up a field somewhere in to the south of London, whereas the army was a mass, a mass movement um, involving thousands of people um, putting forward, yeah, the, the seeds, the basis of these democratic arguments. But I suppose, well, yeah, do you want to say, Joe, what, what happened to Rainsborough and what happened to those army radicals? Yeah, well, they were brutally, brutally suppressed and crushed. Rainsborough may have been murdered, I'm not sure, um, but he certainly was killed in Doncaster next to what's now House of Fraser. Sadly, not very fucking very good. Well, it wasn't House of Fraser. <laughs> I've never been to Donny, but apparently there's a plaque next to House of Fraser which says "Old Old Greensboro was killed here." Um, and yeah, various there were various other um, mutinies. Um, Burford Church uh, people were executed and, and crushed. There was also an anti-war element to it because they were talking about the Commons and some religious radicals at the time were talking about the Commons. It's in Marcus Redeker's um, hierarchy book. It's really good. Um, talking about um, they didn't there was an they didn't want to go to Ireland. Cromwell wanted them all to shut up and go to Ireland. They didn't want to go up to Ireland. Some of them because they hadn't been paid, fair enough, bread and butter shit. But some of them because they didn't want to. They were like, that's their land. You know, the land belongs to the people. They, they, I mean, they're putting forward very sophisticated arguments. And it's funny when I like comparing the book like nowadays. It, you, the squad I was was like sitting around eating, eating bacon sandwiches, watching fucking loose women and Jeremy Carl a nappy break and those lot were writing like democratic constitutions and i'm kind of like what well, how did it come to this um but there are there are reasons for that of course um but yeah and repeatedly those those people have been crushed but sometimes there have been successes as well i mean obviously lots of veterans came back from the second world war and lobbied and campaigned for a fairer settlement and they got it uh, after the first world war they didn't get the land fit for heroes i talk about if you look on the front of the book the cat badge is two crossed spliffs and a skull and the, the banner land fit for heroes, um, or homes fit for heroes. But and the and the, the granddads of the World War II guys didn't get that. And I think that they were themselves were very aware of it. So when they came back, they 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 fought for this settlement and civilians. I mean, it wasn't just veterans, I mean it's wrong to say. I think the, the veteran vote is mythologized a lot. It's a very lazy position that particularly kinds of social democrats just go, oh, when squaddies were all left wing, it's much more complex than that. But the welfare state, um, the NHS comes from that from that current in British society, that post-war current, like wanting a fair settlement after the war. And it's, it's important to, to look at those things, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, it's like teaching the history is the important thing, isn't it? And it's, this is the whole thing about the, the statue discourse. It's the whole thing of, oh, why are they trying to destroy history? It's like, no, I would love to actually talk about the history. Um, and I guess as teachers, you get those odd little moments where you can actually... Well, you can actually do it. Like a, like a couple of days ago, I was teaching the kids the Dalkit Decorum Est story. And I remember in school reading that and thinking that was that was a brilliant like poem and just, just such like visceral language. I remember like just teaching it to the class uh, in my best kind of like, I think I had to recite it for like some kind of poetry competition. So I was properly going for it. And then uh, you're talking to this one kid at the front of the... That this afternoon, what is the writer trying to say? He's like, uh, I don't know, kill all the Germans or something? Like, uh, fight, fight, fight for a country? I don't know. Uh, nuke them all, nuke them all. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. I uh, didn't quite get it. But I do think there are some some moments, like the kind of, uh, like the foot, you know, they know, there's these little things they do know, but you can kind of reframe it. So, like, the football truce is you say, well, that was a mutiny. That was a mutiny. That's what that was. <laughs> that was a mutiny. Or you're trying to explain to them, like, do you think it was an accident it was 11th of the 11th like that wasn't it doesn't have people were being killed up to that moment why because rich powerful people decided that would be a cool time to do it and um yeah the mutinies that were happening in the sort of german and sort of russian army i think um which sort of broke it all down so i guess i guess what i'm saying is like are there any other like little kind of tips and tricks that 
either people sat in the room with me or Joe, you have like any other kind of little nuggets of history that are quite good in kind of showing that, you know, is there something that people already know that you can give them a little bit more and kind of show things for what they really are? Yeah. I mean, I try and talk to, to those, those, tell those anecdotes in the book in that chapter. Also, I'm not a historian. I'm going out of a historian who's a, an actual historian who cringes, cringed at my attempts to try and tell people what happened in the past. It helps me a lot. So I hope I've done it reasonably well. But uh, I mean, I, I I mean, the one, the ones I, I always really liked Thompson, DP Thompson. I, I didn't always like him when I got into him. I really liked him about ten years ago. But he's really good at telling these stories, um, putting them in context. I don't know if you can put that in front of a kid and say read that. It can be quite dense. But he's a very good writer, as historians go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's loads of stuff I draw. What I'm really doing is collating. I'm trying to collate a bunch of historical um, anecdotes and just say, look, this is here. This exists. Um, so yeah, and I, and I try and connect them, and it's important. Like the Cairo Parliament is a really good example that I always I keep coming back to, which was a bunch of like bored airmen who sat around in the desert, and the officers and a slightly left leaning like education corps guy were like, let's have fake parliaments for the chaps so they can get ready for democracy, and they all sit around and they start they they kind of they ban it after three days they close it down because all these airmen are like we're gonna nationalise the Bank of England. <laughs> Full free education. And then they started going, um, yeah, we're going to decolonise Egypt because we shouldn't be here. They're sat in Egypt. It's called the Cairo Apartments. And they're like, and these up the officers are like, fucking hell, chaps. We better we better put the kibosh on there. They locked some of them up. They locked some of them up. To, well, one guy's like, on Saturday night, I nationalised the Bank of England. On Sunday, I was in prison. In the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's those really interesting stories of the people who were there. And some people say those events like that happened. They also happened in India and in other places. Um, but they were they some of the participants referred to um, the new model army. They're like a new model army, something like Cromwell's army is better for the country and it's better to fight fascism. So they're they're coming up with these little airmen, um, and we obviously we often think of military people as being completely devoid of agency. They're having these conversations, making these arguments themselves. They're like, what we need is a radical, radical democratic anti-far with spitfires. That's the way forward. So I find that stuff really interesting. They're, they're good stories. And obviously the, the human stories of getting locked up for trying to nationalise the Bank of England. I've got um, quite a long-winded question for you, Joe, but um, just kind of as you were talking and as um, I read the book um, in the last week or so, it kind of trying to make those kind of links between, I think, um, us here and you, we kind of have a similar sort of political project. I think we all were kind of knocking on doors in 2019, um, being looked at like we'd grown a second head, that we were completely weird and strange for wanting Britain to uh, elect a socialist government. But I think it's interesting that um, you talk a bit in your book about kind of your past involved in kind of various Trotskyite sects or dealing with kind of leftists with quite classist views like, oh, if you're a squaddy, you're a fucking psychopath um, beyond redemption. I think kind of what you do and uh, the kind of work you do, and I think it links to the work we do, is to basically talk to normal people and build um, a majority, build a super majorities and a political project that is going to be sustainable and is is going to last like you're talking to kind of veterans and in some cases serving soldiers and you're talking to people who have a cultural attitude that to be um, a representative of the soldiers is to be right-wing borderline fascist and I think we in our job we we're talking primarily to children but we're also talking to uh, fellow trade union members who might not have the same political outlook as, as us. I can think of plenty of my colleagues were going around last week telling kids, um, yeah, well done, wear your poppy with pride and all of that, like not from any kind of political bent particularly, but it was just that kind of a culture they'd picked up and it's it's going to take a long time to kind of break that down and kind of shift things. But um, yeah, I just, I suppose, what what do you think the way forward is kind of more broadly for for the left for trade unions, and I think it's interesting. You've, a few times you've used that word, um, dignity, dignity in the workplace, as as like a, a universal kind of want or need or desire. Yeah, no, it's an issue because I came into you got so I came into politics very late and from a profoundly reactionary organisation. Um, and I talk about the military in terms of it being like, in many ways, like a far right organisation. So I came into politics and I was I was rough around the edges, man. Like I'd said stupid shit. I was like disrespectful to women. I still had one foot in the barracks. I said all that stuff. But that, there was a there was a division. There's like working class lefties 
who guided me because they knew where I come from. Uh, and then there's what I call the Unisoc Mafia. You know the people who like they're reading <laughs> a bit of Franz Fanon in the library before they join the soft left of Labour with Mumar and Mupar. There's those guys who are like cosplaying working class for a bit, and that was some of the people I was around. So I collided immediately with them. But then there were wiser heads who'd be like, Joe, you can't say that. Joe, this is not. Yeah, like they teach me things, um, and that's that's kind of why I ended up in. You know, I'm a, and I'm a man of my class, and, and that's what I'm committed to. And I think there was a over the period of Corbynism, particularly, it disturbs me. And I'd say I like some of these, I like some of the people, I'll be honest. I, can't, I, I forgive middle-class people for their shortcomings. <laughs> and upper-class people, no one's perfect, and particularly them are not perfect. But it annoys me because I often felt, and I know other working-class people when they come into movements, you feel like a guest. This is a working-class movement, and you're working-class, and you feel like a guest. And I think around the Labour project, there's, it's funny, they're always talking about the revolving door on the right of politics, don't they? Like arms firm, MP, think tank. The left has a, a similar thing, a similar thing. It's like momentum job at comms, then you go do a PhD, then you get a column in this paper, then you go and work for a think tank. And there's, this, there's these networks, and it's basically just the managerial class is really what it is. And I'm like where, like, where are the working class people? So that's what informs my politics, as you say. And it's about, yeah, as you say, it's about dignity. That's what I came back again and again. Uh, and that's why I think I invested in left-wing ideas, the idea of dignity. And it's like, it, you know, a lot of, you know, I'm not, we're not angels or anything like that, but you, those ideas are supposed to be about, it might not make you great. It might not redeem you entirely from whatever you've done, but it can make you a little better. That's the appeal of socialist ideas. And that they have um, an explanation for why things happen that's materialist. And it's not moralistic and it's not like something that's wrong with you. And I find a lot of the stuff I ran into initially and just on like the bourgeois left, it's really essentialist. And like the, the idea that if you're a squaddy, you must, you must have joined because you're a psychopath, because you're a racist and so on. But it took me a long time to unpick that because I'm not a theorist at all. But that's my starting point. In terms of like I'm not an organiser, I'm, I'm a gobshite and a kickoff merchant. I'm not like a, a really good organiser. I don't claim to be really admire people with that. That said, but I always remember Loki, my man Loki, who, who's... Um, or appeared in and out as I've been doing politics around anti-imperialism. He said he says like organise in person. I think that's the thing. Like go and talk to people and organise in person as much as you can in our busy life. I think that's a really important thing that I've, I've tried to. I thought that was a good bit of wisdom. Um, stay off Twitter as well. I know I'm a blue tick, a blue tick arsehole, but you know you have to go meet people and talk to them because because um, it's really like alienating to do things to just like post your hot take and uh, and. You know, when you're rated by how many likes you get, I think that's really bad. And it's definitely not, to put it in court, that's not how the agitators did it. It's not how the World War One rebels did it. It's not how the World War II veterans did it. They were, they did it in person. Um, yeah. I guess it's how you, how you, uh, how you do that in person, like on a coffee break without uh, sounding like some absolutely insane conspiracist uh, Nut job, which is what I sound like when I try and talk about the British military at any point to someone who's just asked me, Oh, yeah, I had a nice day today. And I start ranting about like the empire in India and stuff. It's just like, uh, maybe that would be better on Twitter. That's <laughs> uh, I guess it's just like people just have this kind of like they, they kind of take, okay, maybe there might be bad stuff about the military, but I guess they have this kind of like utilitarian feeling that like overall it what it does is good. I think that's, that's just like a general thing. Okay, British military empire, uh, uh, oh, I suppose that is bad. Um, all, all the kind of mental health and the veterans who are homeless and all that kind of stuff, like that, yeah, that's probably bad. But the British Legion really helped them, don't they? You know, and, and or, 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 yeah, I just think that, for me at the moment, that's the, you know, any conversation I do have is around, it's quite hard to kind of break through. But I think you're, it's helpful hearing your experience where you say you have to value that for some people it is, it does give some kind of social mobility. I think, yeah, you have to be even-handed about that. I think the problem, I think one of the problems with perceptions of the military, which I try and talk about in the book, and I interview a load of veterans, critical veterans, thinking veterans about it, is the idea that in our in British history, in English history, there's basically been like one moral war, one moral war where we fought fascism, um, and the rest of them were like dirty little colonial fights or mass, you know, the First World War, which is kind of distillation of, competition over empire but we still we frame them and the military frames itself it knows what it's doing that it's almost like the people who storm the beaches at anzio and on d-day and the band of british equivalent of the band of brothers or whatever are the same people as we're 
doing the same job, that the organisation has the same moral character as the one that, that was in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's just absolute bollocks. It's absolute weird revanchist bollocks. Like, have your one moral war. Like, I, I talk to World War II veterans. There are a few of them, increasingly few of them. Um, but a lot of them are proud of their war. I agree. I've got no problem with going to kill fascists. As soon as the, the Germans turn up down at Dover, I'll be the first one down there with machine gun. It's not going to happen. Um, but that's the problem is that we see the military through the prism of the one moral war, World War II. Um, and we have to strip that away. Look, that's a, that's a, that army is an anomaly. It's an anomaly in British military history, in British history. Um, you know, people can argue about, of course, the Falklands and moral war and so on like that. But the one they always hold up is... Nah. Second World War. Yeah, that's my position as well. But the one they always hold up is, first of all, the Second World War, um, as if this is the same, this tiny little backwards professional army is the same as that mass conscript army, which was like a ferment of debate, as we saw with the Cairo Parliament's example, with all kinds of people pulling in all directions, that that is somehow the same, has the same moral character as like, um, as uh, as the, the current British army, which is, let's face it, it was just about 12 people <laughs> now, because it's all been cut down by the Tories who love the army. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's an argument we have to unpick, and then you can start. I think that I found that useful when I'm speaking to people about the military. Uh, not everything we do, it's also cultural shit because everything is now coloured by the Battle of Britain, um, the sepia tone Dunkirk stuff. Everything's coloured by that. And that's about, I've just read Peter Kennedy's Imperial Nostalgia. He's really good on that stuff. About nostalgism has crept into everything. But I think. The World War II thing is, I find it's a good way in to talk about broader broader issues because people will go, now, nah, of course, it's not the same as Iraq. It's obviously not the same institution. It's not the same people. I mean, the other important thing, maybe this is our is our last thing, is um, what we haven't really talked about is the purple poppy for the uh, for the animals that, that die in the war. I, 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 it's something I feel really, uh, really strongly about. Um, and I wondered if you've done anything with... Uh, like animal veterans? <laughs> no, I can't remember what we, our regimental mascot was. I know the Yorkshire regiment's got a ferret, has always had ferrets. And there's pictures of some squaddy riding around with a ferret, like with like weirdly loving, weirdly loving eyes at this ferret. <laughs> but every, every regiment seems to have an animal mascot. I can tell you what they all are. The Irish Guards is a wolfhound, obviously. Um, but see, that's a weird, I think it's a weird provincial British thing. Like, do you remember in the Afghan evacuation? Um, there was there was all this stuff going on. There was one ex Royal Marine who was trying to get his animals home. Do you remember that? Yeah. And the whole Afghan war was like the horrors of drone strikes and night raids were suddenly obscured behind this one guy who was trying to get his 20, 21 legged Jack Russells back into the fucking UK. And yeah, was I mean, it was that and pictures of squaddies holding 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 babies, like squaddies holding babies. I mean, it's a anglo brain thing. Like it's like that racist pets account. Like, people are obsessed with animals, aren't they? <laughs> but come on, guys. Come on. I mean, that the, the whole pullout from Afghanistan was a, a fucking circus in of itself. But you know, they left a plane load of people who have risked their lives to collaborate with the Western armed forces as interpreters, as as functionaries in our military occupation. We've let. You know, seventy families just we've thrown we've thrown them to the dogs uh, in order to save a plane load of dogs. I mean, it, it just blew my mind that this was a feel good story being placed at the front of a of a fucking obscene Farago. Someone FOI because I, I, the only thing I can imagine I don't know, but the only thing I can imagine happened to those dogs was as soon as they got in, they all got put down. And I really. <laughs> 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 I'm going to FOI if no one else does and, and find out because I really like a load of dogs from like, you know, Helmand province and they're really just going to, they're going to come running down the ramp of a Hercules and spring off into the, into the, the wilds. No, of course they're not. But they have to come out yet. I think Pretty Patel would have uh, euthanized, yeah. euthanized those dogs herself as a, as a special treat. <laughs> Uh, uh, Joe, have you got anything for us? What, 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 what do you think teachers should be focusing on just in general? What first of all, be focusing on getting my highly affordable new book onto the national curriculum. My first priority. <laughs> <laughs> no, beyond that, I mean, I know it's hard. It's hard because you obviously have limitations on what you can say. Um, and you can't like, I suppose yeah, there are probably spaces to sort of proselytise, but you can't really proselytise, can you? But 
Like, even well, just, yeah, I think it was World War One stuff. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, how, uh, but even with the World War One stuff, just like to diversify it a bit um, and, and put some other, add some other narratives. I don't know what that curriculum looks like myself, but it seems that that stuff's been kind of dictated, starting with Gove. He was really into it, wasn't it? I don't know how that's been expressed in practice, but from the sound of it, it's pretty one-sided and pretty pretty lame and not very accurate. Well, it, 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 Joe, you, you, it's, it's one-sided in terms of the list of topics that are mandated, but we're in this weird halfway house where um, most secondary schools now are academies, which are not legally obliged to um, follow the national curriculum, but it, is also, but it is also something you could be pulled up on by a hostile Ofsted inspector. So you're in this sort of weird, between, between a rock and a hard place, and that you are free to depart from it, but be careful. Um, but I think you've nailed it already, and and this links to a lot of what we talk about on this podcast in terms of like decolonizing and sort of um, you know marginalized voices. It's about narratives, all right. And a lot of a lot of the radical history that you touch on in your book is about like the narratives of the the ordinary soldiers, not the narratives of the generals and the politicians who and the sort of that great men history that serves as you know like uh, most people's passing understanding of of of, of past events. I think there is a duty on teachers to drill down to, to 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 learn about this stuff, and and kids can figure it out for themselves. They don't kids don't need to be proselytized. You know, they, you do you do not need to like tell kids how it was. They they genuinely work it out for themselves. If you tell them what the living conditions are for the average British British Tommy in the trenches, they're like, huh. I guess they weren't treated very well, especially the teenage boys that got to lie about their age and were mm. shot for retreating, you know, shit like that. Yeah, I find that, yeah, it's like you just show them, here's Britain, right, yeah, here's the Falkland Islands over here, right. <laughs> and and they're like, oh, okay, that's stupid. Um, or, yeah, just like the numbers of people who die. Or, I mean, because I teach, you know, like we do uh, peace and conflict as an ethical, like, topic. Uh, which is really interesting, like talking about pacifism and like resistance to things and civil disobedience uh, and talking about like, yeah, just conflict in general. Like what are the causes of war? And you kind of like nail down to those and you go, oh shit, well maybe if we just dealt with those who wouldn't need wars. Or you do, you talk about nuclear weapons and I have, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's like a kind of, it's a straw poll, it's not statistically accurate, but like very few kids in my classes are like a pro-nuke. And, you know, you just have to tell them like, not every country has nukes by the way, they're like, oh, right, yeah, um, okay, fine, maybe we don't need them. You know, it's, it's really not that, some of these, it's a sort of open door to push on, really, I think. you just got to show them the, the right stuff and they can make their minds up. They're not stupid, I'll say that. They are quite stupid, but <laughs> you, they, if you give them the right information in the right way, it, 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 yeah, it's, uh, it's illuminating, really. Yeah, they're not stupid, but they definitely have a very keen sense of fairness, young people. So when you teach, for example, the British Empire, it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't take, uh, yeah, the average the average 12-year-old child can kind of draw those links for themselves. And I think, yeah, within the within the curriculum, we get a prescriptive overview. You need to cover World War One, But within that, I think uh, we still do have a lot of leeway to kind of teach it in the right way and teach it in a in a progressive radical dare i say socialist direction without too many people breathing down your necks too much and i think yeah that's kind of a hope we've got as well i think uh periodically you get kind of armchair generals that you know like marc francois types who moan about moan about how lazy teachers are how easy we have it and it's like well i don't see too many of them training to be teachers to come in to, to teach history the, the right way tends to be. All, all of those, I mean, the Tories have that obsession with, like, whenever there's a teaching cri- a retention crisis, they're just like, we'll get the army to do it. It's like that response to, like, oh, the bins haven't been collected for a while. We'll get the army to do it. It's that kind of weird thing. They are, like, everything. Like, the prisons, the prisons going wrong, get the army. Yeah. Jobs, get the army. COVID's going wrong, get the army. It's, like, it's a cure-all. It's like a magical panacea for every, every possible problem you can imagine. All those ones with schools, they've just failed. Like, they've closed up some of those. They had those fast-track things where they got kind of golden handshakes trying to get people out of the army. Uh, people just didn't want it. And I, 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 I seem to remember the figures are about 13 people actually applied. Yeah. Three of them were in Veterans for Peace. Three of them were lefties. Three of them were anti-war. <laughs> Guys we knew. Guys we knew it just left were like, I'm going to be a teacher. <laughs> yeah, well, I worked in this school where there was this guy who was in the army and he was training and and uh, I remember just talking to him, and it was in a school that was in deep crisis. It was falling apart. And this guy was like, 
this place is a shit show. Like I've been, I've been in the army. Like you would, you know, he'd sort of ask a simple question. I'd be like, oh no, oh there's no one to help with that. Don't worry, there's no, you can't. It's like, who do I see about this? Oh, I, I have absolutely no idea. No one's going to take responsibility for that. And they just couldn't believe how badly uh, run and like chaotic these things were. I just and and how badly paid and how much stress, how much stress it was and how little support there was and things like that. And these are people that have been, you know, like sworn out and had to do bayonet stuff, you know. Mm. So. Well, Nick, thank you for your service. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, and thank you very much for your time, Joe. Yeah, I'd urge everyone listening to definitely go out and get a copy of Veteranhood. Uh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic uh, read. Uh, I'll leave final words to you, Joe. Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to add? No, just um, I'll be doing I'll be doing more book tours and events. Um, so people keep an eye out wherever you are. I'll be doing things. Buy the book. Um, uh, thanks for having me on cheers for the opportunity yeah thank you Joe Um, you've all been listening to Requires Improvement if you like what you hear give us a like on wherever you're listening to this podcast follow us on Twitter get in touch with us if you have any ideas of any future shows any guests you want to get on Um, yeah give us a like and share the 